0: I don't know if it was necessarily threat intelligence at the time, but um, it was violent crime. So I worked on lots of gangs, drugs, narcotics, good old-fashioned FBI bank robberies and stuff like that. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters. The industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game.
1: Protective intelligence and how EP has transformed over the last two years. Today, we're going to be speaking with Kristen Leonardson of Crisis24 and founding board member of the IPSB. I'm here with John Moss. John, why is this such a key topic? Well, look, it's
2: becoming apparent that if you want to succeed in executive protection and in the world in which we live in and where our clients and principals face so many threats from so many different outlets that if you want to be able to protect your principal you're going to have to understand and to master to some degree threat monitoring now if you're fortunate you might even have a team behind you, you might work under a GSOC, and you're gonna have to have an appreciation for how the GSOC works, for the personalities in it, and to build a relationship.
1: Indeed, and I think that's the key thing, because if you're a solo operator, it doesn't mean it's not your wheelhouse, it just means you need to know what third party to rope in or to call. And if you are a bigger business, then perhaps you want this in-house which I think is a nice parallel with the way we've been treating some of the more technical skills. It might not be that you have to be, you know, script kiddie, hacker, blah, 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 but you need to know who to call. So I like how that ties in. Also today, we're going to be talking about the IPSB in Las Vegas. I wasn't able to be there in person, but I saw so much online, including live feeds from our dear friend and co-producer, Elijah Shaw. Um, I don't know if you uh, caught any of it, John, but what what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on this year's event?
2: Well, I, I missed it because I was in the air for most of it, unfortunately. But I was catching up in the communities. I saw lots of great photographs and it looked like everybody was having an awesome time. And it was great to see so many from our community in attendance and to hear the really positive things that they had to say. And it has definitely manifested within me a huge desire to be at this event in the
1: future. Absolutely, and it is 100% gonna happen. I can tell you now, next year, you, me, Elijah, and Sean all together in Vegas, a lovely commitment. Obviously, we can't uh, speak for everyone, but but I think I think that is gonna be a great uh, BBA circuit, NABBA uh, collab. Um, I was there 2016, 2017, and 2019, and it absolutely has grown. But let's talk to Kristen and frame today's debate around Protective Intelligence and the way in which it's supercharging EP and its place at the IPSB. And now let's meet one of the contributors to The Circuit magazine. The Evolution of EP, Threat Intel as a Service, and What Happened at the IPSB. Many, many topics, perhaps too many for one particular podcast, but we're here very, very pleased to welcome Kristen Leonardson, Vice President, Managed Risk Services at Crisis 24 and Board Member IPSB. It's a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. I've finally recovered from Vegas and gotten enough sleep.
1: Absolutely. Now, what a, what an event that was! So many of our colleagues uh, there, and we're, we're so excited to hear uh, more about it. But I'm here with John Moss, and, and together, I guess, we want to frame uh, the experience with the evolution of EP as a topic. Um, so, we, so, so we have our three quickfire questions that we like to ask that set the scene. Um, you know, one. You know, what's the problem? that we're trying to solve here. What What is the issue uh, at hand with, with EP and, and the evolution, including lots of different services like threat intel, and then your passion, and then what should the uninitiated know? So Kristen, what is the problem that we're trying to solve for by integrating threat intel as a service for EP?
0: I think traditional executive protection as it's usually done, just the physical protection of it, really does need to expand. Um, Obviously, and we talked about this before about um, online threats. We've talked about workplace violence. We've talked about working from home on um, the effects of COVID over this past year. Um, it's getting into medical. So traditional physical close protection, executive protection just has exploded into all these different areas. And in order to really do a comprehensive job to keep your principal, your client, their organization, their family safe, you have to pull in threat assessments and protective intel and, 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 and. The problem is just getting it in front of everyone. So, first of all, we can get the knowledge out there, but then really taking it to the next level. So, we're all providing a much better and comprehensive service to our clients.
1: I love it. And what about you? What about your background? Where, where does your passion for threat intel actually come from?
0: Oh, my passion for threat intel, um, I started with the FBI when I was 22 years old. And so I was an intelligence analyst there. So I don't know if it was necessarily threat intelligence at the time, but um, it was violent crime. So I worked um, lots of gangs, drugs, narcotics, good old-fashioned FBI bank robberies and stuff like that. So for me, it was really understanding the... looking for the puzzle pieces, right? If that makes sense, of what piece am I missing to really solve this puzzle? And that still continues today with the work that I'm doing and the team that I have.
1: And what about the uninitiated... EP colleague out there, perhaps one that, you know, thinks of it as guns, gates and guards and maybe can't see how threat intel as a service would integrate into their work. You know, they've got a bag. They've got boots. They're fine. (laughs) What about these uninitiated people?
0: And that's fantastic. And you still need the hard skills. You still need to drive. You still need to shoot. You still need to be able to move and logistics and getting the principal to safe areas. Those are all very, very, very important hard skills and they're perishable. So you still need to train them. But because the threat landscape is becoming so much more difficult with online threats, with people online, you know, going in there and kind of putting up whatever they want. And, you know, God forbid your principal or a politician tweets about their company or they tweet something negative about themselves. You could immediately have thousands of threats um, or people that are adversarial towards you very, very, very quickly. So what it used to be of worrying about one person physically showing up here and there you could actually have a whole movement against you um, or a government depending upon what they, what you're looking into. Um, and so I think that the traditional skills are very, very important but also to get employed in this world, you have to look at the soft skills, you have to understand the online skills, you have to understand threat management and how all the risks play into what you're gonna do to really push yourself forward, distinguish yourself in the field so you can get hired.
2: Hmm, Yeah, I think uh, already you've raised so many good points there, Kristen, and it seems now in this day and age that our clients and principals have more ways to hang themselves than they ever had before. And obviously that rests on our shoulders. But on on the other side of that coin, I guess we also have uh, many more different and varied forms of solutions that we can implement now. So with that in mind, where do you see the responsibility lying? Do you think that the uh, operator, the the EP agent, needs to upskill and broaden out into these areas, or should we be looking to integrate more with specialists like yourself in a GSOC and so on?
0: It's definitely a little bit of both, and I'll tell you what's working really well at my company. So we do have the traditional executive protection agents. Then we have my team that does the threat assessments and the intelligence products and protective intel. Then we have a third team that is actually an intelligence team that's just looking out for the protectors. So what we found, and and my colleague Morgan Stevens can tell you about this, what they found was the protectors had their hand, you know, were constantly looking at their phones, trying to get the next piece of intel, trying to figure out what the yeah. next thing should be. And they didn't have eyes on the physical pieces that they needed to have. So what we actually have, so we've got the physical EP team, we've got the Intel team supporting the EP team. Then we have another EP. It, Intel team just supporting that EP team and those protectors. Where are they going? What are they doing? What do they need to know right now? So it, it needs to be a really comprehensive environment and protectors can still do the physical piece, but they need to understand the importance of the other two pieces so they don't have their head in their phone or they're not missing something that they could have caught very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an educational thing that everybody can get up to speed on very quickly, but I think our integrated team is probably the best, but I would still say that the individual protector should know what it looks like and how to do it.
2: Clearly, that sounds like a fantastic solution. And, you know, once you're up and running with it and everybody's familiar with it, it's just going to be value add. But what have the challenges been, particularly from the point of view of the EPA agents uh, with working in this new uh, dynamic?
0: I think a couple of the things have been that obviously when you tell EP people that they have to read something <laughs> or you give them something complicated to read, it's frustrating. Um, they're used to being tactical. They're used to putting out quick fires. And when you talk to them about a strategic issue, about maybe this political environment is going to affect the boss, or uh, you know maybe this election could affect you know the logistics of what you're going to do in these countries, they don't necessarily care about the background. They don't really care about the 20 pages of or you know 17 years of, of study that the analyst has done. It's just the quick four or five things that tactically, what do you need to know when you're walking out the door? So I think that there's still kind of a dichotomy between what the analyst has to know to give them the right points. And then it's understanding from the executive protection agent pur- you know, purview that they do have to understand of kind of how some of these strategic issues could become a tactical issue. Does yeah. that make sense?
2: Yeah, totally. So does this work as a two-way feed or a one-way feed? Because c- clearly it's, it's great to have discussions, right, but sometimes if the discussion is going to slow down getting that information out in a timely fashion, you know, how does that work?
0: It needs to be a two-way feed. So here's, let's just take the example of, um, you've got the analyst looking at a POI, but the analyst looking at a person of interest or someone who's adversarial against the principal, Right and the analyst is the one that's looking at all the information and telling them what they're doing and telling them when they see things going up or down or threats are escalating or de-escalating online, the protectors, they're gonna change their operations to what is going on with that POI, that adversarial person, so they can better protect and mitigate risk against their against their um, principal. But if the agent sees something in the field, if the analyst says, hey, they're driving a brown Chevy truck, and we give them a description of the person and everything else. And this next time the agents come back and say, you know, he wasn't driving a brown Chevy truck, he was driving a different vehicle at this point. Then that information needs to be cycled back into the analyst cycle so they can start looking at that information. So it does really need to go both ways. Um, And that can be easy debriefs. That could be a pre-brief before an operation, before an advance, and then it could be a debrief afterwards. Um, a couple of, one of the clients that we have right now, we've got the operational person and the analyst and the SOC that's kind of monitoring all the operations. They're all in the same emails all the time. Everyone is seeing the same thing. So it's really opening up the communications and forcing them to communicate with each other, yeah. almost to a point of nauseam, but they're doing a good job with it.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, right there, it, that sounds like a lot of people and I, I don't know, I was, I was trying it to keep count, but I think I, yeah, I think I lost count. <laughs> at and, least three, and,
0: it was at least three people.
2: Yeah, and spread across the three teams. What are we looking at for this kind of setup? How, how many people on on average, you know, would you typically dedicate towards this?
0: It really just depends on, of course, the level of risk for each of those, you know, for each principal, and that's going to be determined of uh, what that looks like. Sometimes we've got some folks that, maybe we just do an online review of their adversaries online or perhaps their POIs, we do it once a month because they're not really at a critical level where they are having violent threats. Um, or they're not really at a critical level where we think there might be an attack. But it's someone that we just want to keep an eye on. So I think one of the important things understanding the first of all, the risk appetite of your principle, right? Because if you tell them to do something and they say no, you're not going to be able to get them to do it. Um, it's understanding the ranking and rating of the threats, not everything can be a, a five-alarm fire. Otherwise, you're just chasing fires the whole time. So you do have to think about how to rate the level of criticality for things, and then what are you going to put the most attention to? Uh, but then you might have someone who is so high-profile um, and so adversarial that they have to have this large group to kind of keep them safe in, in a, you know, online venue, physical venue, all these other pieces. Um, now, can the am- average agent that is just you know in a smaller shop or it's just a couple of guys do this absolutely it's 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 scalable it's completely scalable it's just understanding what kind of tools are out there to do it and what they really have to pay attention to and what they don't have to pay attention to Mm,
2: yeah and i like the way that you talked about all those resources and assets and didn't mention budget once
0: yeah i know but right isn't that fine we'll just get (laughs) unlimited budgets um no budget is a huge huge issue obviously um but as you're as you're showing the criticality of things so maybe someone who's very violent maybe someone who has made you know threats before is in a place of acts placement where they could commit a violent act um or has tried to commit a violent act before you know then obviously that's a little bit different for what you would do with the budget than maybe just some people who are online and making little threats here and there if that makes sense so
2: yeah totally totally and and i guess the hardest aspect at least initially is to get the buy-in of the stakeholders especially when you know there's big uh, dollar signs attached to it so well, I, I i don't want to assume it's kind of formulaic but what have you found over your time in presenting these services are good ways to display and illustrate the value proposition of having you know a fully staffed gsoc
0: So i think there's a couple of different ways to it obviously again it comes down to the initial the, the initial threats that we're referring finding the initial information that we do so what we do first is usually what we call an online vulnerability assessment which is just looking at the online assessment the online background and profile so if we were going to do one for Pello, we would do um a assessment of him his immediate family Um, because sometimes it's not necessarily him, it could be a number of members of his family that might be more vulnerable, Um, and look at kind of what the online profile looks like for him. Then also in conjunction, doing a physical security assessment, right? Wanna look at his residence, pattern of life, maybe some of the places that he goes to, um, kind of marry those two things up and then make a recommendation of what we're seeing from there. But then again, you always have to go back to what does the principal want to do and what are you gonna talk them into? Um, because I've worked places where they, you know, we could tell them you've got X, Y, and Z issues and they're like, no, it's fine. We don't, we don't need protection, we don't need help. Um, so it it really comes down to that. I've seen some mathematical equations, um, which is very interesting when you're talking about, especially someone who works for a multimillion dollar international company, uh, you know, sir, you make X amount of money a year, which comes down to X amount of money an hour, which comes down to X amount of money a minute. And if you're driving a 20 minute drive between your home and work, you're spending, you know, you're you're costing shareholders X amount of money. And usually it's it's pretty substantial. And at that point then, why wouldn't we hire you a driver? So you don't have to worry about when you have to take the next turn. You are relaxing or you're working on calls or you're reading the newspaper um, or talking to family. So there are ways that you can make those monetary arguments of not only are we keeping, are we making your life easier but we're also protecting shareholder value and we're making sure that you're in a good environment so you don't have to be stressed about driving or in traffic or anything along those lines. That's just one tiny example. Um, so it, I've seen those arguments made a couple of times too, especially when they do have shareholders, then a lot of times you can talk the board into security more than you can talk the executives into it. Yeah. And,
1: and Kristen, do you think this is a defining feature of the, last two years in the pandemic. You know, EP colleagues have not been traveling initially. So people said, well, well, how can I understand what's going on in other places without having boots on the ground? So people gravitated towards intelligence as a service. And, and, and I guess that's why we're sort of asking this, you know, the, the, the evolution of EP over the last couple of years.
0: I think there was a couple of trends that we noticed that we talked about again at the conference this year. So, whenever it was, without people traveling, there was a lot more, um, a lot more press to put on residence security and then also online security. So, those were two places that obviously, you know, if you're not going to be at work, you have to protect the residents a little bit more. Also, going online to look for a lot more information. Um, one of the things that was brought up on a couple of the panels was talking about. Um, what to look for with your vendors and contractors. So now that you haven't been traveling and you've got these you know, third-party partners or providers in other areas, you probably need to go back and check in with them because they might've been viable before um, the pandemic, but you don't know what state they're in now. So you might have to go back and kind of check on those things. So it is a bit caused by the pandemic that I think people you know, need to go online and do a bit more research before they go out in places. But at the same time, um, without making it travel we'll get up and going. I think you're gonna to have to rely on your partners that are in countries to kind of get you that information again, if you can't get there yourself.
1: And actually someone said that maybe this also came up at the OPSB is one of the biggest problems revetting your previous partners in all these different countries. Cause we don't really know how they fared these last two years or, or, or we think we do, but, but maybe that's the challenge
0: we think we'd deal with, that's a challenge. And there are some regions that are still in a really, really bad um, state, their diminished medical capacity and and the rampant disease in these areas. And they're going to take a lot longer to recover. Um, A lot of um, Central South America, India, um, parts of Africa, they're just going to take longer to recover um, because of how, how bad the virus was in those areas, and then trying to recover with their government medical capacity and everything else.
1: And I guess, I guess that then, well, that's that's a, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because over the course of the last two years, there's been various movements uh, towards and uh, away from a um, risk-based approach, and you know, threat intel, uh, you know, that 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 you do and threat intel that you receive. What, what what do you what do you think this is going to do to the whole sort of ESRM drive? Um, because because obviously threat intel as a service is inherently not your own observations.
0: Um, I think honestly it's it's not. I would say I mean my company is 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 very big, so we do have resources all over the place. But also looking at our partners, it's just really been, remember, for getting the information from them and, you know, understanding that hopefully they're still in line with where they were um, and they're giving us really good on-the-ground information. I think as far as, uh, like everything else online, uh, you have to go back to not single sourcing anything. Whatever you, you know, if someone gives you a piece of information, you have to go double-check it. You have to make sure you've got a second source of validation. So there's so much disinformation out there, too. So I can just get on my soapbox for a second that just because you read something online does not mean it's true. Just because a news source tells you it does not mean it's true. Um, You need to go back and double check everything. And even with maybe some of your on the ground um, folks, they can help you with that, but you just have to make sure without actually getting there, which is the tricky piece, um, that you are still getting the best information that you can. And that's going to continue to be a problem for the near future.
1: But that is a great point to make. Double and triple check even even those on the ground sources and 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 and, and you know third parties can help. Um, I think that's key.
2: Yeah, accuracy of intelligence versus speed of dissemination, right? And I, I and I was going to ask. I maybe you've already kind of hinted at this, but where do you see the biggest uh, challenge in this area in terms of where do we need to move? further towards, is is it more the accuracy or is it more the speed that we can get the information, you know, delivered timely to the right people?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, um, speed is always, key, but there is, I would just say, there's so much disinformation that you just have to stop for a second. Um, and so when something does happen, um, with our team, we immediately, especially it's a life safety issue, you want to report it as fast as you can, Um, especially if it's something that's going to, you know, put someone in jeopardy or anything along those lines. But at the same time, you can't single source anything. So you see something pop up, quickly double check it because what you don't want to be doing is spreading more misinformation, um, using resources that you don't necessarily need. And especially with executive protection, you never want to be the agent that cries wolf um, because you will lose credibility so quickly so I would say take an extra two minutes and Google a little harder. That's just my, my analyst way of looking at it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously coming through the, the pandemic, uh, as uh, Pelham's alluded to, it's, it's caused a lot of EP agencies and providers to maybe shift their focus a little bit, certainly appreciate and look for ways in which they can be, uh, you, know, you know, providing value throughout more static quiet times so for anyone who might be in the process of setting up an operations center where where do you start what's what's the first you know part of that footprint that you should be looking to put down
0: i would definitely say getting good sources crisis communications and your procedures i would start with those three um because if you Regardless of what sort of incident you had, if you don't have a way to communicate and effectively communicate, get the right people in the right room and let them know, you've immediately failed. So you get a piece of information in, double check your sources, then have a distribution method to get those communications out. Um, Make sure that you're following good SOPs because if I'm in one side of the um, Intel Operations Center, maybe you're out in the field and we don't have a plan for communication, and Pelham's the boss, and I escalate something before you escalate it, that might make you look bad and then you're not happy with me. Um, that happens constantly. But the other piece is also, you don't wanna have both of us going to Pelham if he's the boss, because then he's irritated the two different people are coming to him. So I would definitely say, double check your, you know, get a good method for sources to come in, double check them immediately, get a communications plan right in place and make sure that everyone is clear. Um, because in an incident in an emergency communication is key and if it's not as smooth or as synced as it should be you're gonna have issues
2: yeah yeah i got it and do you think an external setup is better than internal like are uh, fresh eyes better in a situation like this
0: it depends i've seen bull so and i've been in bull and my company actually does this externally for people however i would say you know you're going to bring people in, if you're going to bring people in either internally or externally, you have to trust them. You know, you have to trust them to have your best interest to start and, and do the best thing for your company and your principals and everyone else. Um, and so wh- whichever way you're going to go with it, just make sure that you've got that level of communication that there's no stifling of, you know, maybe you've got, maybe Pelham is your internal FTE and I'm your contractor and you only tell him some things but you don't tell me other things, you're going to fail. So regardless of which way you do it, it really depends upon your budget. It depends upon your headcount. Um, some companies don't get a lot of security internal headcount, but they can get a lot of money to contract services. So again, it really depends on how it's all set up and, and what works for you. Um, but get people you can trust and, and just, again, make sure the communication is open.
1: And on the subject of Intel, what if we use you as our Intel asset on the ground, at least retrospectively for, uh, last week? Uh, you know, how 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 was the IPSB? Give give us a bit of flavor and maybe, you know, was Threat Intel a key topic?
0: Um, I would say definitely threat intel was a key topic. Um, but I'll go over the the highlights of the of the show. We had over 50 vendors, which as you know was twice the size of what we had before. Um we had about 650 people. Um, it was the largest event that we've ever had for IPSB and the largest protector event in the world so far. Um, it was amazing. We had the first night for the reception, um, getting everybody there and seeing everywhere. I will tell you, there were so many people I met for the first time. It was, you know, and a lot of people I, I recognize online or I've been in a conference with somewhere and maybe we weren't very close but there were so many people I didn't know. Um, And it was really, really amazing to see all the new people there. Uh, And and, and they weren't necessarily new, it was just their first time being able to to actually come to the conference. So it could have been a perfect storm between travel's not quite up and going, or people had surplus um, travel budgets, or everyone was just dying to get to Vegas. I don't know exactly. Um, But I wanna say it it was a really, really well-attempted event. Um, We had some great speakers. Obviously, talking about Intel, so did a panel on that. We have Lee and the team from the Kindest Game, Spencer Corson talking about his um, book, The Safety Trap. We were very fortunate to have Fred Burton um, from OnTIC to our Intel Brief, which was very cool. He talked about some Intel trends and what they're seeing with executive corporations. Um, so overall, it was a very well attended event. A lot of talk around, a lot of a lot of chatter around how the business has changed um, what we've been doing differently during COVID. Um, we had a lot of discussion around standards and guidelines. So the, um, ASIS executive protection community has been working on, they're not standards and guidelines, they are best practices. And so what the intent with this is, is to have kind of these best practices throughout different parts of the industry, obviously the physical, but medical and legal and ethical and, um, you know, practitioner, what you should and shouldn't do with relationships. Um, And so there's a lot of us that have been working on that for a long time. There is a second group that is coming up, and they're going to look at ANSI certification, which is going to be more US-centric. So there's a lot of interesting work being done to continuously professionalize the executive protection field, and that's also very exciting.
1: I loved all the um, live streams uh, that I got, uh, but but, but I also enjoyed the fact that one of our co- Producers, uh, Mr. Elijah Shaw himself, was on a panel talking about online training. Um, I thought I thought that yes. was really, really interesting.
0: That was actually the first time I had the pleasure of meeting Elijah, and he was amazing. He was so good. And uh, we even had an author's corner, so we had a place for those who have executive protection and written um, to kind of sell their books. So he was also one of the authors that we featured. Um, yeah, just really amazing to to have him on the panel and talk a little bit about training and the different types of training and my opinion on it is look. my mom used to be a teacher and she was a teacher for uh, you know learning disabilities, uh, younger children. and so people learn differently and you have to you have to teach however that person's going to learn. So we did have a training panel. it was a little decisive, but at the end of the day, however the student learns is the way you should teach them. some like online, some like in person, some like, shorts you know short spurts something like that. um so it, it was really good but at the end of the day but there's so many different ways people learn and i think that's important to take into account also
1: yeah it it did cause some uh some some debate which is always good it's always good <laughs> um even that might even be another to...
0: good s- webinar for you to do
1: hey maybe maybe john what do you think
2: yeah i think there's room to squeeze one more in there But listen, uh, I want to ask one thing before we finish out here. I want to know uh, from Kristen what she thinks. So if if we've got any listeners who are thinking, you know what, this this area really excites me. I'm really interested in this. They want to get into a career or maybe they want to make a transition or perhaps they just want to expand their own learning. Aside from qualifications and, and education, uh, because that you know that can be researched. What are the kind of skills and traits, and what are the things that people can be doing to broaden their knowledge and to find out whether this would be a good fit for them?
0: So there's a few organizations out there. There's ARIP, which is the Association of International Risk Intelligence Professionals, and that is kind of the that is kind of the ASIS just for intel analysts. Um, I want to say that Antic is has the Center for Protective Intelligence and it's free. You can go look at their blogs, you can go look at the writing there. Um, they do a survey and they do an annual study of kind of what they're seeing as protective intelligence trends. Um, so I think that's very important. I, you know, We're starting to get a lot more resources around protective intelligence. Um, the DHS in the US Department of Homeland Security um, did a public sector, private sector project and so the team from that last year actually did a white paper on private sector intelligence programs. So that's really interesting to find, also. Um, I happen to have a copy if somebody wants to see it. Um, and so that's a really interesting one, too, to kind of talk about like, what do these programs do? How do you set them up? And why should you use them?
2: Amazing. That's some great resources for anyone who isn't uh, fortunate enough to begin their career in the FBI, I suppose, right?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: And yeah, it's great you mentioned uh, Ontic, and you know we got we got a lot of friends from Ontic. We we could mention you all by name, but uh, you know who you are. Um, but 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 I like this, you know, combining a thematic interview with a well. Tell us how it went at IPSB. I think this is a nice approach because it's quite zeitgeisty, it's quite current, and uh, you know, especially where, as we as we as we look to the future of um, varying degrees of travel threat intel seems to be a revenue stream a modus operandi that a lot of our colleagues are are going to look towards um so uh from john and myself it's been a pleasure having you on Kristen. We, we we're very grateful for your time and we look forward to welcoming you again soon
0: yes thank you guys so much for having me on and uh let me know what else you
1: need it was our pleasure thank you Kristen. Absolutely feeling the love. Really great to have Kristen Lennison on today. And, you know, reporting back from the IPSB, we really got a great flavour of where it went, where it's going, and how vibrant the community actually is. On the thematic side of the podcast, protective intelligence, I think this is what EP colleagues were up to when they weren't travelling at the beginning of the pandemic. What, what, what do you think, John? Yeah, it's fantastic, you know, and to get a guest like Kristen on
2: and with the knowledge that she's gotten, the experience that she has under her belt and to just be able to fire questions at her and and tap into that knowledge is just incredible. I mean, I took a lot away from that. What what about yourself? What was the big takeaway for you?
1: Well, I think you need to cross-reference even the Boots on the ground sources because there's, there's often an inherent um, you know assumption. Oh, we got we got some intel about a protest and, and and apparently it's really large. Well, the boots on the ground looked out the window and it was three people and one placard, Um so 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 usually that shuts down the conversation. But especially after the last two years, we need to reassess our local friends and see how they're holding up because we even need to cross reference that intel and for me that was that was a big takeaway yeah
2: it's the whole accuracy versus speed debate and and i find this fascinating you know getting that timely information out there so that it's effective and you can do something with it but ensuring at the same time that this information this intelligence is accurate and it hasn't been polluted mm-hmm
1: which actually is a nice segue into why online learning also has this debate at hand, because you can be very, very current, very, very immediate. You can set things up very quickly, yet there is also a great benefit to offline learning. And and, and, and that segue I sort of brutally made there because it was wonderful to see Elijah Shaw speaking on several panels at the IBSB, Most most interestingly for me was that debate around online learning versus offline learning and and i know even the one post that i made just this week uh got shall we say a lot of attention uh on on, on that very topic uh, what what do you think horses for courses or have we uh, reached a turning point well you know what uh i actually
2: want to take this opportunity to address a slightly different topic here and it's to do with our communities and and the type of people who comes into the community uh, you know they want to be active they want to progress they want to learn but I saw something uh, this weekend or or through the IPSB via the communications that were coming out of it Uh, there's a particular member who we have in both the BBA and NABBA and that says something and I'm not going to say his name he knows who he is but but the reason why I bring it up is because I think he's been a shining example of what somebody can get when they engage when you know joining the associations is great reading the magazine but really the benefit comes from engaging and immersing yourself in this and in this one particular member who joined at the start of the year was new to security he came in with his eyes wide open and his hands up you know not apologetic but saying "I, you know I, I'm fresh I'm new I want to learn I don't know where to go can you guys help me and we said look You know, we've got the resources. Here's the direction. Here's our suggestions. And this guy has got such an enthusiasm. He's asking questions all the time, you know, faster than you can answer them. And it's that hunger that has driven him. And, you know, to see where he is now today in such a short space of time and and seeing him at that event, you know, proudly sporting his badges and the progress that he's made in that time, I think is a fantastic illustration of what you can get when you're dedicated and you really put yourself into
1: it. And that is a great example of engagement. So so blow blow the online offline debate out the water, engagement and willingness to uh, network, I think is, is absolutely key. And if it is the same person, I very much think I know the same person you're thinking of, uh, then, then it was a pleasure to meet that person um, the other week as well. But we are still looking to include some interesting topics for the next edition of the magazine and i for one i'm going to write a synopsis of what's coming up for the seventh annual executive security close protection technology forum in london in january um lots of other topics that we are looking for and uh, i i really feel that we can mine the ipsb experience for loads of contributors um aside from that the apps Very, very, very uh, good uh, engagement, both on the Naba Protector app and the BBA Connect app. Uh, Loads of people we could mention, but we'd end up being here for a long time. You know who you are. Uh, We're very grateful uh, for your support. But it was a great pleasure to welcome Kristen, and I am very grateful for her support for the magazine. So from John and myself, This has been another fantastic edition of the Circuit Magazine podcast and we look forward to seeing you soon. You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.